Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. This episode was recorded on June 14th, 2021. I'm joined today by Dalton Sanoski. Dalton and I discussed the state of the educational system from the perspective of educators, what works, what doesn't, and how we could be better. We set off discussing his playing career as a professional in France, but were repeatedly drawn back to the educational system, as we both believe that it is something that must be addressed sooner than later. I hope that this is of value for you. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, I'm sitting here today with Dalton Sanoski. Dalton Sanoski is alumni at the University of Saskatchewan, where he played for the men's volleyball, the Huskies, and he did his Bachelor of Ed degree. So now he's a full certified teacher. He's the kind of guy you want to leave your kids with. And he just finished his first season of professional volleyball playing in Nice, France. So today we're going to be talking about volleyball, community, culture, and hopefully a lot more. So we're going to dive in quick here with a, a little bit of an early life look at Dalton and where you came from, when you started playing volleyball, how you got into volleyball, what's been your trajectory? Oh God, I picked up volleyball around grade like five or six. It was just like in phys ed and then our elementary school system, they just did like little small schools against each other. You play in this little badminton court with a little string across the net and you only use like the volley lights, those little tachikaras. Mm-hmm. I think I picked it up there and then I my introduction to club volleyball was around grade grade eight. Grade eight is when we kind of in Saskatchewan pick up in about 14U. So started playing within Prince Albert Volleyball Club in 14U and then progressed all the way through high school there through 15U to 18U. We kind of segregated ourselves. We had this whole division of the public system and the Catholic system. So we had a teammate, the whole club team full of guys I played high school with from our 15U to our 18U team. And then that went all the way through. We were three-time provincial champions and then went to nationals and didn't really do too much or kind of got stomped by all the Alberta and BC teams. Um, and then our my provincial team trajectory started playing provincial team around grade 10. I kind of had to give up lacrosse on the side there. I was a little disappointed, but I don't think I could play field lacrosse at six foot six, six foot seven without tearing out an ACL. So left my lacrosse stick on the sidelines and kept with volleyball and was fortunate to play through 17U and 18U and got even luckier to go play uh, Western Canada summer games that summer before settling on playing at the University of Saskatchewan. I wonder if we ever would have run into each other on the lacrosse field. It'd be interesting to go back and check out. What made you decide volleyball over lacrosse? Um, I just felt volleyball was something I snowballed at. I just kind of kept getting better and better and better as I touched the ball. And then I think lacrosse just became like so unfeasible. If you wanted to keep playing and go to bigger recruitment tournaments in the States, you would have to go to Calgary or play at a club at Calgary or Edmonton. It just became not feasible for my family or myself and I just didn't see many big six foot five six foot six guys playing lacrosse as most of those football guys that were about six three six four two twenty so taking a look at my body type I don't think I was best suited for it <laughs> and what was the you said that you started to snowball in volleyball and what was that like for you how did you learn how to learn in volleyball well, I think it just was an aha moment. I just I remember hitting my growth spurt in high school after grade nine. I shot up from five nine to six four, so I had a nice little seven eight inch growth spurt. So 
it kind of was that self-actualization of holy crap I can jump a little higher now I can hit the ball a little harder and then I was really lucky at a really good high school coach and club coach was Jeff Court so he really kind of made me focus in on volleyball and he would tell me like go watch film go watch these guys on YouTube and then I would get called out of class and we would video our practices so we'd call me out of class I'd get dispatched down to the office and the mid ladies at the office would be like, all right, uh, Jeff wants you in his office. And I'm like, all right. So I come in and he'd be like, all right, you're not in shit. You're, we're just here to watch some volleyball. I was like, all right, this is cool. I can skip class for this. <laughs> so I think I just kind of became a volley geek like most guys. I mean, you could ask my university teammates, I kind of geek out about the game. So mm-hmm. I think it just became that quest for knowledge and quest for skill development if I wanted to go play at a really high level. What was your decision into teaching did you know that you wanted to be a teacher from a young age or uh I think I wanted to start teaching around high school I did a little bit of volunteer work like my mom taught in a dev ed classroom before I went to high school before she moved to the elementary system so I would always go volunteer with her students and I always thought it was a unique opportunity to be in the classroom and just kind of give back to a community that's given so much to me and then I come from a whole family of teachers. My one auntie is a math consultant and PA. My other auntie is a principal and my mom's a teacher as well. So I think I was a little bit somewhat pushed into it. But I think once I realized I want to do it and got that first year of university under my belt, I was, I just kind of fell in love with it even more. With your mom being a teacher, it seems like you guys have a really cool relationship. I remember watching that documentary that they did on you and she was a big part of that. And so how is your, how is your relationship with her? guided you I just I think with my mom we're so close already she's my rock and I just pick her brain about everything education whether it be like educational philosophies or any forms of like diagnostic testing but she, she's done it all she's done in the high school system she's done in the elementary system she's has her she can teach in French and English so I kind of geek out in that aspect but and as I say with my auntie my aunties are the masters of education so those are the two women I really relied on to kind of form my educational pedagogy. And then just from there, it's always been constant feedback of what works, what doesn't work, how do we engage students? How do we get authentic engagement from home, from parents to students? So I think it's just a really unique and diverse relationship I have with the two of them. And I'm able to just bounce ideas off of them and just try to learn as much as I can. I think as especially with teachers, we always say we're lifelong learners. So I think that's the one thing I'm just always working to strive toward. How do you work through educational philosophy? So how is that something that you discuss? How is, as, as, a, as a broader topic? Because I understand that there are lots of different ways to engage different students and different students need different things, but how do you start to explore that and how do you transfer knowledge between people as to get the best out of people? I think educational philosophy is so unique. It's, a, it's something we talk about so much in the educational setting, and especially when, like in school, it was one thing they always hammered home, like you should know your educational philosophy, you should know what you stand for, your values, your morals in the classroom, your, how you teach, um, how you instruct students. And I think for me, it's always stems from like a student's lived experiences and my lived experiences. And I've been super fortunate to come from privilege and to, be, to have both parents at home and to be in really great schools in elementary and high school and had really great teachers that impacted me. So I think my educational philosophy stems from the great teachers that I had and the great women that are teachers in my life and how I pulled from them. And then as well, I think I've taught a lot in the community school system. And I think that's something that's huge there and there needs to be more male teachers in community school settings within personally, my opinion in Saskatchewan, we don't see a really great representation of men in the elementary school system. We kind of see it more in that secondary and high school level. Is that the community system is elementary? 
Yeah, community, uh, elementary is like um, just like K to eight, but like community schools exactly be like kind of in underprivileged areas, kind of in like the west side of Saskatoon or the west okay. side of Pete, for example. Right. So I think in those areas where maybe income is not as high or students may not have a positive middle model home, that's something I really focus on is if I, as a substitute right now, stepping into a school setting is kind of being that positive, soft, gentle male that's in their life and just kind of like pump air into a kid's tires and pull from their experiences. And, and something we've always talked about is like, we really never know what a student carries in their invisible backpack. So the kids can be coming from home and might not have had breakfast or maybe didn't get a good sleep or could be sleeping on a couch, could have their whole family in one house. We never really know those experiences. So school might be that safe place for them. So I think for me, providing that safe haven in the classroom, whether it's just like with a, hey, good morning, I'm really happy you're here if a student comes in late and just always proving to be that like soft, gentle, caring, compassionate person. So I think that goes a long way as a student because they can look back on that lived experience and say, hey, like Mr. Snosky really treated me good. This is how I should probably try to treat my friends now. How does that impact you in seeing community schools or schools in less developed areas with potential economic hardships? And how do you, how do you address that within yourself? For example, when I was in Denmark, I was teaching at a school that was, we had the lowest socioeconomic classes, the highest divorce rate amongst kids. We had everything going against us. And it was something really difficult to see was, number one, the kids that didn't have behavioral issues. And they were essentially at the mercy of the kids that did have behavioral issues because they wanted, some kids wanted to learn and some kids were very prone to making noise. And so it was frustrating because you obviously want to instill the values in kids that can let them learn because once they learn, then they start to, it, it's just so cool when kids start to learn and they start to love learning and it's so fun to watch. But something that I found difficult was being empathetic towards the kids that were being noisy and had behavioral issues because it's something that you want is to provide a learning experience for the kids that want to be there while also understanding that it's not necessarily the fault of the kids that are experiencing behavioral issues. A lot of them are coming from single parent homes or they're being raised by their grandparents and they're of low income and all of these other things. So how, what is it like to step into those communities coming from your background and then what's the impact on you? I think that's so unique how we can see the parallels. I think especially with your experience in Denmark and then especially mine in Saskatchewan is like, it's the exact same thing. You have a, it's all like, for, I think with the behavioral issue side of it, like we, some schools are very fortunate to have the mercy of like really good funding. I mean, our system, I, obviously during the pandemic, the school systems, our funding isn't too really like, isn't great right now. But if you're fortunate to have like an educational associate in the classroom that gets the opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with a kid, it's it's so helpful but now i think with those kids that have those behavioral issues is you try to like you try to be empathetic but it's super hard as a teacher and you can't really look back on your experience as a newer student i think that's one thing i've always tried to revert back to is like okay when i was in grade five i was pretty immature i was pretty goofy i would like blurt out or fidget and my teacher would make me like write dictionary definitions out of a page like that was my punishment so like that's i think that's such a stark reality of how education has changed so much where like we used to discipline that behavior but now with that behavior it's like how do we help the student be successful like especially with having funding and having an ea or something it's like does a student have an iep which is like an individualized education plan how are they meeting curriculum goals or are they meeting just other social skills goals like can they hang out with friends at recess can they hold a conversation and then 
I think with those kids is just being soft and being on their level and just trying to continue to nurture that relationship and kind of, and just not really putting them on a pedestal or not really isolating them, but just treating them like one of their peers in the classroom. You don't want to give this kid like, Oh, the student has an exceptionality to treat them different. And we see in the students, the students are really, I love this generation of students now because they're super accepting and they're mm-hmm. super helpful. I think that's one thing that's changed so much. And I love that these kids can just take them out. I remember I was teaching at a school here in the city and there's a functional behavioral program in the school. And when I was subbing in a grade four classroom and a student just went over and shot hoops with two of the kids in the ethic in that program. And I was like, okay, like these kids really get it. They really know how like a, a friendship or a relationship can really build and help that person. Cause it's the same thing. Like those students might like, especially in Denmark and here, it's like, those are the same things we see in this city, especially in Saskatoon or Prince Albert or, wherever inner city without throughout Canada is that there's divorce rate. There is maybe dad's not in the picture. Mom's not in the picture. Um, they're living with the grandparents. Like there's so many external factors that we don't have control over. And that's the same thing when it ties back to that in the, their, their little backpacks, like what are they, what are they carrying with them? What's that baggage that they always have to carry with them? Mm-hmm. You make a really interesting point about not, maybe not enabling kids to be, Maybe a better way to put that would be seeing the best in kids and pushing them towards that rather than enabling them to be enabling them with their potential learning disability. So something that I I liked about Piaget was that he talked about the, the relationship that we have with other people and how we define our identity, not only through our own means, but also through the means of other people. So I can come to you and say that I'm this person, but then you can also look at me and say that I'm a different person. And we kind of come into the middle there. And I, I, the way, the way that I act influences the way that you see me and the way that you treat me influences the way that I act. So there's this relationship that we have where I'm not necessarily the person that I say I am, but you and I acting together are going to find the person that I am. So our relationship in some way determines my actions and something that I found with the kids in Denmark was the more that I developed relationships with them and found out who they were and then altered our relationship to play with the things that they were good at and lift the things that they were not so great at. So I had one kid that had a, a, he was dyslexic and a thing that he, so he never read basically because a lot of the faculty would use his dyslexia as a, I wouldn't say excuse because that's a little bit harsh, but it was, it was somewhere. Yeah. They, they just didn't, they didn't really just, they, they didn't let him read essentially, or they didn't push him or encourage him to read. And I think that his dyslexia was far more mild than what was diagnosed because after we worked together for about two weeks, what essentially what happened was the, I was a, I was a teacher's assistant and then about three days after I got there, the teacher that I was TAing for quit. And so I had to teach English to a bunch of Danish kids that didn't speak English. So they were grade (laughs) six and seven, barely getting into English. So some of them knew a little bit, but a lot of them knew very little. So I ended up having to teach these kids English without actually speaking Danish. So there were lots of language barriers, but one thing that I, really harped on was just the the willingness to try new things and that's what i did with this kid was just 
sat him down and read with him in English consistently. And after two weeks, he was, he was stellar. I'm, I'm amazed that there's not more research going into educational programs to understand how to efficiently teach kids things in shorter periods of time. It seems as though our education system landed on something that kind of worked for a little while and then said, well, this is good enough. And we haven't been striving to push that anymore. For example, the, the reading level of kids is decreasing consistently now. And that's something that seems, I'm surprised that there's not a, some kind of protocol to teach kids how to read and write in a few months to years at the max. Oh, it's, that's so true. Like we've seen like such a decrease in literacy levels and especially like we do like Fontas and Pinnell testing. We test the kids and start like beginning, middle, and end of the year, like their reading levels to see if they've improved. And uh, even how kids spell with like, we use a division one here in Saskatoon words their way. It's a really unique spelling test with the kids. I could say the word screwed and they have to spell it. I would say the word, it'd be a sentence and then the word again, but we would look at like beginning blends like the middle and the end. So it's like if they spelled screwed at SC, they would get, if they put SC in there, they get one point because it's a style point or they get the beginning blend. Right. And if they had like consonant in the middle or wherever it would be, they get points for that. So it's like, it's not a true right or wrong answer. Mm-hmm. It's just seeing how these kids decode kind of their words and how they listen, how they can articulate that onto the piece of paper. And I think that's a really unique way. I, that was something I was, I had never seen until I got into my internship and I was like, wow, like this is something I wish I would have had as a student. Mm-hmm. And then especially now, I think with like, I, the way I say it's teaching and teaching and education itself, it's a hundred percent a relationship game. It's how can you connect with kids and how can you build that relationship from the start of the year to the end of the year? And how can you nurture that relationship within your classroom and foster that classroom culture of not, it's not so much academic excellence, but personal growth as people and as like students. I always think of just encompassing the whole student and tying it back to like, our educational goals in Saskatchewan is like, we want to like build engaged citizens. We want to build lifelong learners. And we want to build a sense of self community in place. Those are the three things we always talk about, whether we like unit plan or whether we lesson plan, it's just the whole entity of education. And I think that's one thing I'm always looking for whenever I'm teaching kids. How am I making this kid a lifelong learner? How am I making this kid recognize where they're from, where they're going, and then just, like that sense of like building those relationships with their peers, their the, like admin staff in the building. So helping them just become overall better people. And I think like, that's the thing we, I just think it's a hundred percent relationship. If you can't connect with a student and you can't hook and engage your students, then it's like, it's lost. You can, you can drill this, the practice and all anything into a kid. They won't understand it. But it's like, if you can, find ways to relate it to a student and just find ways to make it unique and exciting. They get hooked and they want to get that aha moment where they want to learn. And that's, it's one thing you and I've talked about and like through Ken as well. It's like, don't be afraid to fail. Like we've all failed in our lives. No one's this perfect human who's had this perfect rise and steady growth. We've all had little bumps and dips and like growth isn't linear as cliche it is, but that's what I always tell kids. I'm like, growth isn't linear. Like, you're not going to be just skyrocketing straight to the NHL. You're going to go, maybe you'll get bumped down to the house league. Maybe you'll make AAA one year. There's so many different things that and uncontrollable factors that you don't have control over. Mm-hmm. But I think we're just, I'm learning to prepare kids for just life and prepare these kids for just like life after school, just trying to make them good people. And, and how do you do that? So I was having a, a conversation today with Danielle Comrier and 
we talked a little we were talking about grit that's her her research focus she actually she actually said that she ran into you or she saw you the other day you were walking into the beach courts yeah i haven't seen danielle well that's first time i've seen her since i left like Mm -hmm. because she was doing grit stuff with us before we left and yeah us older guys were like oh maybe this is bs maybe it's not but like it's the stuff you and i have talked about before like we, right. this has been built into us forever yeah exactly so that was that was a part of yeah that, that was a part of the conversation that we had was i asked her a little bit about carol dweck and carol dweck is the main researcher that came up with the concept of growth mindset and growth growth first fixed mindset is the dichotomy fixed mindset being the preconceived notion that you are only as good as you are and you will only grow very minimally and linearly to what you can do right now. So if you're bad at math, then you're bad at math. If you're bad at reading, you're bad at reading. And growth mindset is this idea that you're able to grow and expand your understanding and your wealth of knowledge simply by trying something new and consistently putting yourself out there. And as you said, failing. And so failing is something Danielle and I talked about is failing is the approximation of the truth or the approximation of the correct action and every time you fail you get a little bit closer to being right or you get a little bit closer to succeeding and so that's a, a good way to look at failure for kids i think and so I'm, I'm wondering how you cultivate that culture within your classroom and on a broader scale also how you cultivate that within a volleyball program obviously as a as a captain figure on the university of saskatchewan and, and an overall leader that was something that you were quite good at was cultivating this this growth and yeah number so first off how do you do that in the classroom how do you encourage children to be lifelong learners and then how do you encourage people around you that are adults to continue in that process especially in education especially now in a classroom i've i love seeing it when i go sub in classrooms and a teacher has a bulletin board that says what's a growth mindset and what's a fixed mindset i always think of like i tell the kids a fixed mindset saying i can't it's like, if you say, I can't, that's the most deadliest thing you can say. It's like, right. I can't do this. And you said it straight on. But I said, I can't do this now, but maybe in a, maybe in a couple of weeks or in a day, I can do this. Mm-hmm. So I was just tell them, like, give it a try. Did it work? Okay, let's give it another try. Let's try something else. Okay, let's give it an honest attempt. What do you think you did wrong? Just having that dialogue with students. You just call, I just tell kids, I'm like, you're going to fail. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. But just, we can keep trying and keep working and keep working and keep building. And then especially, I think it starts, when I think back to my intro, it started like right when I got in the classroom, I told the kids like, it's okay to fail. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to like, not know where, like something that's going on, but like ask questions, ask a peer, ask myself. And I think it's just cultivating that, like making it like making fail. Okay. It's like, okay. You're going to like, we're all going to make mistakes in academia. Like it's, it's and, like, it's inevitable, but I just want to, like, I just tell kids, I'm like, you know what? It's not the end of the world. It's not like, you're still going to date. The sun's still going to shine. Grass still going to grow. It's still going to rain tomorrow. The sun's going to set and rise. Like it's just telling the kids like, it's, it's okay. Just keep trying and we'll figure something out. And I think I always just tell the kids that or I hear kids say, I can't, I'm like, don't, don't say that. I'm like, you say, I can right now. Like <laughs> it's all, it's all dependent on age level, but still those young primary kids, like K to four, I can kind of like coddle them a little bit. And then I get like that five to eight, it can be a little more stern. Like, mm-hmm. Especially in a seven day classroom, be like, all right, you can kind of challenge them to be more critical thinking and kind of a source of inquiry. It's like, all right, where do you think you went wrong? You can kind of pose those questions to get their brain turning and kind of kickstart that like self like self-identification and self-growth process mm-hmm. kind of forces them to 
dig deeper, we pose that problem and we go, all right, what happened? What do you think you did? And then just let them go. We don't give them any guidance. We say, all right, go crazy. Something that I, something that I love doing with kids is just tacking on yet at the end of yeah. I can't. Anytime yeah. someone around me says I can't, I always, I always say yet. They're like, yeah. oh, no, I can't do that. I'm like, not yet. Not yet. Not, not yet. It, it just, it, it's that, that concept just changes something from so, so static to something so dynamic. Yeah. I, I can't just so absolute. And then I can't yet, or I can't do that yet is it's almost a, it's almost an internal challenge towards something. It pulls you in the direction yeah. of being able to do that thing. Lights a fire underneath them. They go, okay. And then you see their face light up. And you're like, Oh baby, here we go. Like, so they just, you just sit back and like, all right, I let them in a pasture. Let them go crazy and see what happens yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I, I think that's the coolest thing. That's what I love is seeing a kid just like light up and they go, Oh crap. Like I figured it out. And then you're like, all right, sick. And I kind of just like guided you that this is all you. Mm -hmm. And then in a volleyball context, I think university academic or university athletics, pardon me, is so unique because we're like, it's honestly like working two full-time jobs. And I think, you get a unique mix of people who come from maybe different cultures, different countries, different parts of the province, country, whatever. And we're all here kind of for that same reason. It's like, we're all here for, we love the sport and we love our academics. And then I think in a program, you get a really mix of guys. You get a mix of like my experience, I get a mix of guys that want to go play for the national team. They want to go play professionally. They want to go give it a shot, that type of deal. And you have guys that are there like, okay, I love the game, but I don't want to play after university. I love my academics. And you have guys that are there. It's like, okay, I love volleyball. I love academics. And I'm just kind of here. And then you get those guys in that one lower end spectrum. They're like, I, it's honestly the way I describe it is like, you're here for the label. You're here for being the label of a student athlete and for that identity and for that kind of persuasive and figure on campus or in the community, wherever it is. So I think the thing that I always learned is trying to align myself with guys on the team that wanted to do what I wanted to do long-term. Mm -hmm. And like when I came in, I came into a veteran-laden program of guys that like were proven and polished. And those are the guys I idolized that played for the Huskies that I grew up watching. Like Tyler Epp, Jordan Okowski, Braden McClain, Matt Bussey. I could go down the list. Brian Fraser, Colin Fraser. All those men that I got... <laughs> I watched and I had the pleasure of playing with a few for a couple of years. And those guys are kind of the epitome of what it is to be a high school student athlete. And that was something I wanted to strive for. And I knew coming in, it was like, I wanted to play professional. I wanted to go eventually make the national team. So kind of aligning myself with those guys. And then moving forward as a veteran player, kind of in your third, fourth, fifth, I was like, okay, what's one guy I can take on? What's one guy that's going to gravitate toward me? But at the same point, it's like you don't want to extend yourself to certain places where you're not going to, like, where it's kind of like beating a dead horse. Mm -hmm. There's some guys like you can blow smoke up someone's butt for so long and then they're not going to do anything. So there's no point in expending that and putting that energy into them. Whereas you could put it into another teammate that might, like, look up to you and ask questions. And it's that same thing. It's that approach of, like, not being afraid to fail, not being afraid to ask questions, reach out. I think those things are so intertwined. And I think especially now in my fifth year, we had a really, we had a good group. We just had like that same, we had that, we had a really defined mix of like who wanted to play after university, who was there, love playing at a high level, who was there because it's, they're there. And then who's there just kind of floating and getting by. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting now I'm starting to see a culture change within the program of guys that are buying in and these young kids coming in that want to go and play and 
I think it's we're starting to revert back to like, okay, we're starting to get guys that want to go play professionally. So I think it's kind of kickstarts the culture of volleyball in Saskatchewan a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So that tying in also with the student analogy that you made about lighting a fire under someone and how, what's it like to light a candle for a kid? And then also how do you develop a culture within a classroom where, so for example, there are say 23 to 30 kids in a class. I'm not sure how many, kids you guys That's had but, but that was pretty accurate <laughs> yeah that, that was about the numbers that we were dealing with and and it's, and it's one teacher so yeah. being a ta it was awesome because i could go around and work with these kids individually and i could actually the goal wasn't to the goal for the teacher i found was to work at the top oh sorry i'm getting a call right now sorry i'll edit that out <laughs> oh I, I did not think that that was possible. I've never had that before. Uh, sorry. Um, okay, so the I found that the role of the head teacher was to teach the entire class, hoping that the kids at the top would improve. And then the role of the TA, my role, was to go to the bottom of the list and attempt to bring up the kids that were having behavioral issues or they were struggling with a certain concept and so my goal was to light that that fire of being enthused about learning for the kids yeah. that were experiencing difficulty with that and so as a singular teacher how do you manage a classroom i think that's such like that's so true in like teaching we see like all right we're going to instruct the ones that want to be here and the ones that are maybe like below grade level if they have ea support they have ea support and that look, they'll help them get by, they'll meet their curricular goals. And then my thing, I think I always thought, what, what about those kids in the middle? What about those kids that are like, kind of in like they're meeting or they're not, like they're meeting or not fully exceeding grade level? So I always think about those kids that wanna learn, they're kind of like little helpers too sometimes. It's like, all right, we're gonna do partner work. Who would wanna work with such and such? So it's, it's, it's building that relationship with students. And then once that student maybe sees a student who's like excelling and, math for example they work with someone who's maybe just like just meeting grade level they get that little spark and they go okay like maybe we're doing improper fractions and that kid helps shows the kid how to do it they started going and they get teach for them and then they do their assessment and they're now they're in that exceeding level so i think it's it's building that like culture with your students of like all right learning is fun learning is sick like this is the growth is so cool in academics and then just letting those kids that are kind of up those I would say like they're not the upper echelon they're kind of on the upper end of their academics giving them imposing them the challenge of like all right how can you be a leader in our classroom who could you help who could you help guide and then those other students who may not be or not yet meeting grade level they kind of it's pairing them together maybe as an example you might do math like you might adapt and do math groups so like doing a diagnostic test at the start of the at the start of the year seeing who's at what level pairing kids that are at the higher level together pairing the kids in the middle the other level and then the lower level and then if you're fortunate to have other teachers that are released doing math they can go in smaller groups and then they get that extra instruction time so i think it's finding it's learning to be adaptive i think is one thing especially with that and that's a thing now in education we have so many kids in the classroom and we do not have enough resources or funding Mm -hmm. to help these kids meet their academic needs. It's interesting that you talk about the 
diversifying the groups within the classroom. That's something that uh, Richard Tremblay talks about. He is a researcher into antisocial behavior amongst children. And something that he found would work would be taking an antisocial kid as young as you can find them, basically, or else they, they get to a point where it's really difficult to turn it around. But you, you take a kid that's exhibiting antisocial behavior and you put them into a group full of the best kids that you can find, essentially. And similar is what we were talking about earlier with us finding what my identity is based on your perception of me as well as my perception of myself. We find that middle ground. And so by having the greatest group of kids around that one kid, that one kid actually starts to develop more in the direction of those kids. So it's an immediate influence or not, maybe not immediate, but it's an influence from those kids that surround them. And that pulls them towards the, the socialized kids, essentially. Like these kids are socializing this, this antisocial kid. It's super cool. It's very interesting. It's, it's honestly, it's like it's a, you're a product of your environment and you're some of your experiences. Like mm -hmm. It's exactly what it is. You put a kid in that environment, things are going to change. They're going to adapt and be like, all right, I can kind of come out of my shell a little more. I get a little more confidence. I get a little more extrinsic. They just, they develop. And it's, and it's really interesting to see that development of a kid who is like, you started the year, might be really shy. And then come November, it's like, all right, this kid's high energy. They're working, they're doing all this stuff. So that's the thing. And when you get, a, I think that's going to be interesting when I come into a full-time teaching job from September till June, it's like, how much are these kids going to grow in character? How much are they going to grow in academics? How much are they going to grow as people? Like, it's just so, it's going to be so interesting to see kids just like blossom. Mm -hmm. What's, what's that like for you emotionally? One sec, I got to let my dogs out there about to lose their minds so that I don't have to <laughs> cut this out of the video as well. What's it like for you to see that growth? Because I know that that's a, lots of friends that I have that are teachers ex describe it as just such a rewarding experience to be able to watch kids develop in that way. And that was something that I found as well was actually cultivating those relationships with the kids was far more rewarding as well as exhausting than anything I could have imagined. And it's the same. Oh, as you Oh, you come home some days, you're like, I'm bagged, I need a coffee or I need a nap or I'm going to lose my crap. Mm -hmm. Like they, they take the energy out of you, but it's, it's so fulfilling and rewarding to see them. Like, that's the reason why we do it, honestly, as teachers, is we want to help these kids just grow into a day, like, just become more well-rounded citizens in their community. Like, that's the thing I'm always striving for with my, with my future students, I'm hoping that they're going to just be good people they're going to be empathetic they're going to be compassionate they're going to find a love for learning in whatever field they choose to go into and then i think that's the thing we always, like us i mean us as former students of university as university high school and elementary it's like we always think back oh such and such was my favorite teacher because we did this he really he or she really cared about me so i think that's the thing i always i always kind of relate to it i'm teaching is like all right what's going to be their perception of me once they're two, three, four years removed from my classroom? I have them in grade four, maybe now they're in grade eight. Are they still going to come down the hall and say, Hey, Mr. S, like, how's your day? Like, that's what it is. What do you think are moves that could be made as to improve the quality of education, not only for the students, but as the teachers. And so I'll, I'll run this down a little bit, but while I was in Denmark, it was consistent coffee room talk with the limited Danish that I did have with me to talk about Finland and the Finland education program, because every teacher in Finland, regardless of the age uh, or the grade that they're teaching in is required to have a master's degree. So they have the most educated staff in the entire world. 
and they've actually shortened the amount of time spent in the classroom with the kids and increased the amount of time that teachers have to prep. So yeah. I think it's about, they have about, it's about 50, 50. So they have four hours of prep per day where they're paid to prep and four hours of teaching per day, which in North America, that is not the case. You are, you are expected to teach for your entirety at school, unless you have a spare or some block that's designed for prep and the rest of the time you're teaching and you're expected to do the rest of your work outside of the classroom. So I think teachers are one of the highest burnout professions that are, that, are, that exist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Burnout as a teacher is so inevitable. Even like subbing, it's like you come home, you're gassed. Like you're supposed to, you know, like, like that's the thing. It's like, you could have had a crap sleep. You could have had a bad day the day before you could have had, there's so many external things you don't control, but it's like, you got to get up and be in the building at 840 and force smile on your face because it's like kids have good bullshit meters. That's what I say. If you're, if you're having a crap day or you're faking it, they'll call you on your BS. Be like, what's wrong with you today? Like you seem off. Like they're really, kids have no mercy. Mm-hmm. And I think especially now in education, like that prep time we have is so needed and I don't think we have enough of it. Like I was pretty like, I had, when I was in my internship, I had one 50 minute prep a day so like i like 50 minutes it's like okay when you're entering it doesn't it seems like a lot you're like all right i get 50 minutes to like let off the gas get more ready but it's like you put that into like as a full-time teacher it's like all right you gotta tweak your plan you gotta tweak your week plan you gotta do all these changes and it's like you don't even get time to check your phone or take a drink or go to the bathroom it's like all right crap i burned 50 minutes just trying to get tomorrow ready mm-hmm. and then now you're and then you're going home outside of work and prepping maybe till six, seven, eight. Like I, I think of my internship, I was working eight to three thirty, driving straight to practice, working five to seven, getting home about eight, eight, eight thirty, and then prepping from eight thirty to about 11. And then you're in bed by midnight. It's like, all right, you're burning the midnight wire. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, especially in the pandemic and before we're so limited in funding and resources, like we're short EAs or short sub teachers or like the burnout is so inevitable and it's, it's, you hit the nail on the head. It's such a burnout profession because you give so much of yourself and you, maybe you don't get much back. Like the kids, it's, you do it for the kids and you do it for their fulfillment and you, you get paid in experiences and your, your paycheck and that's about it. But like, I just think we need more resources. We need more funding. And I think prep time is something that's so, so diverse for each division. Like I know in Saskatoon, I think I don't, I can't really quote myself on it, but I knew it's like, it's mandated. At least you get one prep day, mm-hmm. which was like, I know in PA, like my, there are some teachers, my mom's like, I don't have a prep this whole block. And I was like, all right, crap. So like that's tiring like you just get gas so fast what do you think more funding looks like what would you put more funding into i've been trying to figure this out for a while not not like in the so i've looked a lot at the successful education literature and a lot of it ends up coming back to the development of the individual under the culture that they're in as well as the family that they have around them and a ton goes into that single parent households seem to be a detriment to kids, which is super unfortunate, something that maybe we didn't expect to happen before the divorce rate started to skyrocket. But it's that, that, that seems to be quite consistent, which is 
unfortunate for a lot of kids nowadays. I think the single parent homes are getting up to the 60 to, I think at the extremes, 90%. And sorry, my, I don't know if you heard that, but it was loud. Um, and so things such as charter schools seem to be, they seem to help provide a, an area of expertise for especially young single parents in how to parent because a lot of, a lot of people end up having kids when they're in their late teens, early twenties. And I can't imagine having a kid right now. I mean, I think I'd, I think I'd be an okay parent, but I also think that I know a lot more than most people do about kids and learning. So, but, and I, and I think that people that are coming out of high school, I would have had absolutely no idea. So charter schools tend seem to be a, a good answer to that, or at least a, reason the, the one of the most reasonable answers that we have right now and obviously that's a private school and so it it's something that i'm trying to figure out as to whether public school is a good thing or private schools are good things where funding should be going whether parents should be able to choose which school their kids go to whether they sh- whether kids should have to go to the the school within their immediate area i'm i'm not sure i love i love an inside perspective as to what you think I think that funding thing is such a myth. I mean, with our, like us getting the budget, like we were, like I was reading our email from the division. I think it said that SPS to like Saskatoon public was $8 million in the hole mm-hmm. just because of the pandemic. And I was like, wow, I was like, it's crazy. And then with the Saskatchewan government slashing the budget as well. So I think it's such a myth. And I think as a young teacher, I'm still kind of like learning like, all right, where does money go in education? What can I learn about it? And then, I think there needs to be more funding within testing and getting kids testing in school, especially at early age, getting that testing for maybe autism spectrum or any other um, academic except, academic exceptionalities with, within students. I think that's something that needs to be so, there needs to be so much funding in that. Because if, if we can get the funding for the testing, we can get the funding for the educational support for these students to have success in the classroom. And I think that's something that we, is really struggling in Saskatchewan and what I've seen and then especially now I think there's such a stigma around testing a student it's like all right let's test like we want to test this student for um like autism spectrum and they go oh no and they'll pull the kid from that school and go to a different school mm-hmm. okay why does that happen is I think it's just a stigma it's like I don't I don't I don't think parents I'm not I'm not I can only I can't like generalize but it's like parents don't want that stigma of oh my child has a learning exceptionality it's like, oh, I don't want like my student having the label that they're on the spectrum, or maybe my student is um, like. There's so many. There's a list that goes on, but I yeah. don't, like parents want that stigma. Okay, I wanna I wanna try to steel man that perspective because I think that's how we get closer to understanding this a little bit better. So I'll 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 try to steel man that. Yeah. By telling a kid that they have something or are something, that can create a feedback loop of self-fulfilling prophecy where exactly. so, so if you tell a kid that he has ADHD then that becomes an excuse for anything and I've, I've seen that happen a lot I was diagnosed with ADHD as a kid and I'm very thankful that my dad didn't let me get on to meds that that's something that I'm really glad didn't happen and so that that's something that can happen is if yeah. standardized testing becomes a thing kids are put into boxes and if they're put into boxes then that's how they label themselves and yeah. parents don't want that label to be the way that kids see themselves for the rest of their lives. And that can even be a detriment. So something like ADHD, 
by medicating a kid with ADHD the way that, so it actually inhibits prefrontal cortex development later on in life. Yeah. So I think that a part of that is the brain becomes a muscle over time or the brain is, it's our most complex muscle, the most complex machinery in the, in the universe that we understand so far. So we don't understand at all, but it's the most complex thing that we don't understand. And what happens over time is if you are forced into doing something, then that's going to end up building neural connections around that activity. So if there's a drug that gets introduced that gives kids the ability to focus on one thing at a time, because I think that's what Ritalin and a lot of the, the treatments for ADHD, that's what they're poised to do is to allow kids to focus. So what happens when kids are able to focus under that substance is they no longer are under the stress to develop that naturally. And then they yeah. become, and then they become not addicted, but it becomes a necessity to have that, that substance. Because it depends. Right, exactly. exactly. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So, so that, that's my steel man of that perspective. I like that. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, that's the kids. Like it's, it, it's a thing that we talked about earlier. It becomes a crutch. We're like, Oh, and that kid's like, Oh, I can't do this because of my ADD. I can't do this because of my ADHD. Yeah. But I think that's the biggest thing as well is like, we as teachers are the only ones that know that that's other students don't know that nobody else knows that's just us and the parent and the person the, like the our, our our team's person who is in charge of testing within the school does the child get informed um I, it's one thing i do not know okay but yeah, yeah. but I, I think the biggest thing is if we can get that testing and get the funding for the testing we can have that kid just get like maybe ea support or mm -hmm maybe the use of a hokey stool it's like a rock those little rocking chairs with those kids or like those little those little rocking stools yeah. or even like a different desk like just we can ways we can adapt and modify so the student can have academic success but i think as well as like like i'm kids nowadays i've seen in teaching are just so empathetic and caring and like it's it's such a it's such a change and from when i was in school like people were dicks like we went to school, i went to school with some dicks we, like we were dicks as kids it's just like oh, this person's doing this, they're talking out loud, they're blurting, oh, this person has a fidget toy. And now it's like, every kid has a fidget toy. Everyone, someone has, has a fidget spinner. Someone, mm. a lot of my kids have bulky stools. A lot of my kids have little, like, those hip therabands used to warm up tighter on the bottom of the desk just to play with their feet, just something to help them regulate. Like, I think that's this thing now, it's like kids and education is so adaptive and changing, is that we're so adaptive to these new practices to help these kids regulate and be successful and the classroom is as with their peers and like all those other facets of their life. Okay. So that's another, that's a, the other side of the perspective is that yeah. by giving these tests to kids and understanding what can better help the kids to succeed, the teachers are then able to tailor an environment as well as allocate the proper funding towards that classroom and towards that student, which will build a better environment for the kids. So example, if you have, so just as you said, kids with ADHD, yeah. then you, you're able to give kids, you're able to change the environment slightly by giving them, yeah, some kind of, some kind of fidget toy, some kind of, uh, like the stool you were talking about. I actually haven't seen those, but that's interesting. They're so cool. These things are freaking fun. I sometimes get bored and I sit there and I kind of just like roll around. That's, I'll have to send you a picture of it. They're sweet. Yeah. But, but that's, but that's very interesting because then you can also tailor, I, I think what would help with kids is especially young boys have a really difficult time sitting still. 
Oh yeah. Young, young boys are hyper overdose with ADHD. Yeah. And so I think that being able to give kids an environment where they're able to run around, there's a, a cool study that looked at the brains of rats and the three categories of rats were rats raised in isolation, rats raised in an environment with socialization and toys within a controlled environment, and then wild rats. And yeah. the brains of the wild rats were so much more developed than either of the other two. And even the brain of the rat that was in an environment where it could play and socialize was far more developed than the rat that was isolated. So each ra- each yeah. step, the rat's brain was far more developed. And so I think that's a a potential clue as to how we could be looking at the long-term success of children and kind of how I was talking earlier about how we haven't been testing different, yeah. different learning or different teaching methods for kids. Yeah. You, you could take six different schools and run 60 different experiments with different classes by cohort, by age, by year, and over time find the best way to deal with certain kids with their different ailments or their, the, the way that they test and finding what works best for ADHD kids, what works best for autistic kids. And you could learn, you could, you would just run these huge experiments and in 10 years, it would actually probably be, would it be 13 years because kindergarten to grade 12, then you could understand this, this intervention worked the best. Now we're going to standardize this. Whereas, as I said earlier, we've kind of landed on, well, this, this worked well enough for now. So now this is our go-to. It's, it's, it's almost archaic. It's like, oh, this is how dad did it. This is how mm-hmm. grandpa did it. Worked out well so far. Yeah. It's exactly the way I think about it. But I think of even too, like just giving three, like three different methods. I was, I, you could even do it in the sense of like, all right, I'm going to give three different teachers the same science experiment. I'm going to give them no instruction. I'm going to give them just the materials. How are they going to, like, how are they going to plan it? How are they going to instruct it? How are they going to make this engaging for the students go? Mm-hmm. And just see how three different teachers instruct and how three different levels of academic success are in the classroom. This teacher might be lethargic and just, just simple, like simple drill and practice. This one teacher might get really hands-on and allow the kids to maybe work in alternate spaces, maybe take the experiment outside, just use all like just alternative learning environments. And the one teacher might be just like doing different things, putting kids in different groups, and then like just really effectively using the space around them. So I think that's something, and especially in education, like I think if you said it, like kids that like boys, especially young age, Nick, they need to move. I was hundred percent that kid. It's like, I could not sit still to save my life. Probably like I did the diagnostic testing for ADHD. Like my parents, like we've done the test on him. Like he's fine. Like he's just a grade five boy and needs to move. Mm-hmm. And then that's the thing. It's like biggest thing now, especially now in education, we see his body breaks. It's like, all right, kids, we've, I've talked to you for two hours. Let's go outside for a 20 minute body break. We're going to go on the playground, go freaking nuts, burn out your energy, get it all out of you. And then we'll come back. We'll ease back into people. We'll ease back into instruction. We'll go. And that's mm-hmm. something I found that they started preaching. Like my mom did as a, as a teacher. I've watched it and I saw other teachers do it and I saw it in their lesson plans. And then in the, especially when I was learning in university, it was like, this is something they really hammered home. And it's something I found that's super effective for both genders. And, especially in the classroom and like these kids love it. They're like, Oh, sick. We get body break between this period. And they just go out and they go nuts. I'm like, I'm not I'm like, I'm like not even gonna play a game. I'm gonna let you guys just go absolute like ape shit, go nuts. And then they come back and they're like dialed in. I'm like, all right, sick. I'm going to sit here, give you instruction. And they just knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. 
So it sounds like you experiment with your kids. Do you know if other teachers are doing that? Because I think that's something that's interesting that you can, that teachers could do outside of the status quo of education and especially public education is consistently doing experiments with their kids and being self-analytical and self-critical and saying, okay, I did this with this group and I'm going to do this with this group and see which one works. And obviously you need, you need controls and you need large sample sizes to actually be able to pull results because I had, I had a class that was awesome. I could, I gave them a lecture on the hero's journey and how to, how to fail and how, how we fail at something and that's how we get better and all these other things. And they just sat there, absorbed everything. And then I had another class that was talking all the time and they were consistently interrupting. And so obviously you needed big sample size to run a actual experiment that would be generalizable to the public. But for you, it sounds like you run your own experiments. And so how, how do you get into that? And it, yeah, you go. Oh my goodness. That's such a good topic. That's the biggest thing in education. The biggest thing they hammer on you in university is like, you have to be reflective in your practice. Like you just can't do the same thing over and over and over and over again. It's like, all right, it might've worked for one group, might not work for a different group. So I think that's the biggest thing on every day. Like I'll look at my, like when I do, like I sub, I'll make notes. I'm like, all right, this class is super chatty. This kid was, this group was really good. They did this. And then that's the biggest thing I find with every day when I come home, I was in a regular teaching class. It's like, all right, what do I do well today with instruction? Am I talking too long of instruction? Am I giving too many instructions? Did they really grasp this concept? So it's like, that's the biggest thing is being reflective in your practice. I think that's one thing as a teacher, you're like, you're always in your own head and you're in your own thoughts. You're like, all right, am I doing this right? Am I giving enough? Like it becomes such like mental warfare with yourself. You're like, all right, like, I really hope they get this concept. I'm going to give them one more period to get this done. And it's so interesting. And I think that's something like I'm always trying to like integrate or like retool or re like just figure out what works with what groups. Like grade eights, that can be a little stern. It can be a little like be kind of a hard ass and get on them. And then like grade fours and fives, I'm a little bit softer, but I can kind of joke with them. And then you put me in a kindergarten classroom and it's like, I'm a full out teddy bear. I'm on their level. I'm parking <laughs> past 90 degrees at, at this little kindergarten table talking to these kids. Like it's going, uh-huh. Yes. Great job. Like it's so different per grade. And I think it's so funny. And you're just like, it's almost like you're Harvey Two-Face from Batman. You're like, you have so many different personalities. That's the way I think about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that's the, that's what it comes down to is how can you be reflective and how can you adapt? Cause Kids will catch on. They're like, all right, Mr. S always does holes. There's his novel study. I'm going to slip you my novel study uh, essay from last year. They're like, all right, Mr. S always does government in grade four. You're going to do student votes. So here's the, the crap you did last year. So like you can, and then you see, it's like, all right, they love student vote. Let's keep that. All right. They hated holes. What's a different book I can use? Like, and, and it comes down to your year plan. You look at your year plan at the end of the year. It's like, all right, they love this. They hated this. What am I going to do for next year? What grade am I going to teach? Now we go. Mm -hmm. do, you ever, super... do you ever use the kids explicitly to let them hold a mirror up to you? So I know that that takes a lot of humility, but actually asking students, that's something that I developed in Denmark was we, yeah. we had this big system between us where it wasn't totalitarian, where it was my rule is the law, but I had to negotiate with them, especially the class that was much more ill-behaved. I knew that I, I stepped in initially and was super hard ass because I find that works to show them that you have authority and that you have 
some kind of power. We're, yeah. In my in my in my experience, it was very fake power because my <laughs> my authority was predicated on being a TA that did not speak Danish, and I had no idea what disciplinary action I was actually allowed to take. So it was like things are going to be bad if you guys don't listen. And then over time, yeah. I opened up more and took more of their feedback, and kind of tailored the class towards them. So if we had a really good period. Then we would. Then I'd give them a positive reinforcement. I'd say if we if we're really good and we work for forty five minutes, I'm gonna give you guys fifteen minutes and we're gonna go outside. Yeah. Oh, Hunter, I, that's the same thing. I forget whose theory that is. It's like, oh, what's the the salivating dog theory in psychology? What am I thinking of? That was uh, that was Pavlov. Yeah, that was Pavlov's one. I think it's it's honestly the same as students. It's like if you can guide the students and given that some form of positive reinforcement, then you can give that positive, like that, po like the positive stimulus. Like it's like, all right, mm -hmm. you guys work hard. It's the same thing you said, you, you work hard. We can go outside for 50 minutes and just BS around and just get outside. Cause it's nice. So, and mm -hmm. I think with, that's the biggest thing I always find with kids. It's like, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable in the classroom. Like it's, it's nerve wracking as hell. People are like, I don't know how you step in front of 30 kids and just like teach. It's like, I don't give a crap if they judge me. Like I could give a shit less. They could say, Oh, Mr. S, what the hell are you wearing today? Mr. S like, what, like, why do you always have coffee in your hands? Like, all right. Like I just, I'm so flexible with the kids and I'm just so like, I'm not cool. I'm not hip to the game, but like, I'm just like, I just kind of empathize and try to connect with the kid. I'm like, Oh, you kids in this TikTok generation and <laughs> cell phones. And I'm like, like I have the iPhone X. I'm like, well, I got the iPhone seven and it's still got the home button. Yeah. So, but I think that's the biggest thing with humility as a teacher. It's like, you have to sometimes ask kids. I'm like, all right, did you guys like this? No. All right, sweet. I'll change it for tomorrow. It's like, did you guys like this? Yes. Would you want to do this again? Yes. Do you think another class would like this next year? Yes. Perfect. Put them in back pocket and go. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the, that's the interesting. And I think that like, something that's going to come with growth. Like you might be nervous as heck to ask the kids. All right. Did I suck today? Was I good today? Did you, like, did you guys understand this? Yes. Did I, did I give instructions that were clear? Kind of. We, I'm still stuck on this part. And then you can kind of make general adjustments. And then it goes back to that same prep thing. How do you prep the next day? How can you say you had a science period, you did something with an experiment and their instruction wasn't really clear. They're like, okay, Mr. Ash, your instructions weren't clear. Can we, and then you're like, all right, I'm going to bump up here. I'm going to move it. So I fit my um, hours of the week with every subject. I'm going to put this one in the spot and put it in a different spot. And then use that period to clean up what you did and let them keep going. And then once they figure it out, it's kind of, you hope, you hope that it's going to be smooth sailing. Yeah. Well, there's a humility that goes along with that as well. And you have to take a big hit to the ego to be able to, to say, well, I wasn't very good today. And I think a part of that is, especially coming from, a very highly regarded education program in Saskatchewan. You go from university lectures into teaching young children how to learn basic math. And something that I've found is that it's very difficult to learn from someone who's really good at something. The best teachers that I had, I think underperformed throughout high school into university because they, it, it was apparent to me how much they knew about how to learn and the things that people would find difficult and the teachers that were really, I think, uh, naturally gifted were, they, they, they would just breeze through things and they would kind of look around occasionally and ask like, you guys get this, right? And people are like, uh, yeah, sure, totally, man. Yeah. 
So I think that's it takes like, a lot to be able to sort you go. So that's so true. The kids would be like, they're so hesitant. Like, all right, like I think I get it. And he's gonna say, all right, tell me straight. Do you get it? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. That's so like that's so true. Like, I I definitely think that's such a true theory. Like, I think as a student, like I struggled a bunch. I was like, oh, I struggled in math. I struggled in physics thirty. <laughs> Um, I was really good at English. I was really good at social studies and like university had to bust my butt. And I think that's the thing. It's like when you learn to work hard in those primary years, you think of students as like, all right, they have to work this hard, maybe just twice as hard as I had to. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's cultivating that environment of like, we're going to grow together. We're going to, I'm going to give you ample time to do your work. Like work is homework is not a punishment. So yeah. that's, that's the one thing kids are like, I got to get it done. Cause it's, I don't want to have homework and I want to go home and play four hours of Fortnite. It's like, all right, take it home. If it's, I'll give you a day, like we'll be flexible. And that's like, that's the thing. Kids are like, I don't want homework. I want to get it done. I don't care if it's like 50%. I don't care if it's incomplete. I don't care if I leave four questions blank. And I'm, we're, we're, we're working to change kids' brains of like, all right, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to ask questions and ask a friend and ask my parents ask whoever my caregiver is at home and then come back the next day and work through it again right that probably goes alongside your philosophy of learning to learn and learning to be a lifelong learner so how do you encourage learning outside of the classroom environment i think the biggest push i've seen now is like a lot of like tech like technology like all the teachers use the google classroom is what i've seen so far is like, like all right we're doing this english assignment on google docs submit it to me by this date so the kids have like a chromebook at school or the school laptops and they do their assignment on there so it's like all right they did it i can see it i can go home on my home computer and mark it and do whatever and then i think that like even just like communication with parents like i used it was an app my mom used was class dojo it's like I give it it's, so the parent like you're not getting texts from parents because that's just super weird and that's just not professional. Mm -hmm. So it's like it gives you give these parents this like code and then it's they they get the app to put the code in. So it's like I can send um, announcements to the class like all right we're gonna have a field trip this day and all the parents will get it. Or it's like if a kid a parent wants to talk to me they can message on that app. So it's that's a really good way of engaging home to the school. And I think that technology push now, especially now during the pandemic when schools are forced to go remote, I think we're seeing, we're really starting to see like a technological push of like kids doing a lot of stuff on Google Classroom. That's what I've seen here in Saskatchewan. How do you deal with parents? Oh God. <laughs> parents, oh God, everyone's, everyone's got their different style of parenting. Everyone takes care of their little snowflake or cupcake or their kiddo whatever however they classify their child but i don't know i've i mean i've sat through parent teacher interviews and i've talked to parents and you i think you can kind of get a gist of like whose parents are really involved in their kids academics who parents whose parents are like not involved with their kids academics and then from there it's like all right i can stem where their success is coming from because they can go home and get support or they can go home and they don't get the support so I think then that's the one thing. It's like your invisible backpack. And it, it's honestly what I find it's relating back to is my, what the kids carry in their invisible backpack. What is their lived experiences? What's their environment at home? 
and then all of that culminates and that's that's what comes to school does that influence how you interact with the kids there there was one day where the that same dyslexic kid he he was, he was getting bullied and he he got hurt and i had to walk him home and he lived quite close so it was convenient enough and so amazing that they can they can still do that in denmark i mean here that yeah. would just be such a huge red flag but I, be, yeah, but, all right yeah yeah that, it's yeah it's a definitely the erosion of student teacher relationships which is unfortunate but uh but i i digress so i i walked this kid home and and then i met his mom and she was just a, a single mom and she thanked me and we talked for a little bit and after that interaction with his mom i like i, I loved the kid before but after that, I just, I spent so much time with that kid because I just saw such a light in him and we worked together super hard on reading. And I, I'm wondering if you have a similar experience from parent-teacher interviews and being able to meet kids and develop a whole new level of empathy for them. Oh yeah, hundred percent. That's so, 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 so true. I, like you get some parents, you're like, ah, oh, I really like this parent. Like they're really good to their kid. Like you can see that they're getting support or okay, they're not getting the support. So you kind of love on that kid a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But I think like, that's the thing. Like those, and those parents too, they're like, oh, like our son really enjoys being in your, or our son or our daughter really enjoys being in your class. Like we really, they talk about every day, the fun stuff you guys are doing. So like, it's a, it's a little bit rewarding in that aspect. But I think that's the biggest thing where, working towards in this educational setting is really building that connection of like school to home and i think that's the biggest thing it's like you all right like one kid maybe they're living with mushroom or cocoa like they're living with their grandparents and then it's it's tough for them so they cling on like you can see that they cling on to you a little bit more like i had two kids in my internship they're twins i love these kids to death so much i would take them home they're like the nicest kids and I came to my internship and they're like, okay, like, um, such and such is going to be like, he's going to be a little tough. And I kind of took them out as a personal challenge. I was like, you know what? Nope. I was like, he's, this kid's going to cling on to me and he's, I'm going to have him working like crazy. Like two days in this kid's like, Mr. S like you're the best. I'm like, yeah, got him. So it's that, it's like that, it's that aha moment of like, and then I came back and I had to intern there. I taught a couple last month. I hadn't seen them in a year. So I came back and they were taller and the one kid like bolts across the playground. I was like, I don't care. I'm giving this kid a hug. And he like jumps into my arms and I just held him. I was like, I missed you, dude. Yeah. So it's like, it's, that's the fulfillment I get out of it is seeing them just grow. But like when you see a kid's lived experiences, you, you try to put yourself in it. Like you try as much as you can to empathize. And it just, it forces you to just really take that kid under your wing a little bit more than maybe another who has the support at home or who doesn't have the support at home. I think that's one thing I'm learning and then just treating all kids the same, giving them the same love, withholding bias, just being that good, gentle, calm giant that I am. Yeah, you are a big teddy bear. That's <laughs> yeah, I'll change. Twenty-four years of it I'm still the same. <laughs> how do you, how does that make you feel that there has been an erosion of the teacher student relationship over the past? you'd say maybe 50 years. I'm not sure when it started, but I've, I've definitely experienced that now where yeah, you're not allowed to hug your students or in Denmark, it was very strange because kids would come up and hug me all the time and I would look around and make sure that nobody was yeah. calling the cops or anything. And so what, how, yeah. do you, how do you feel about that? And especially as you mentioned at the beginning of this, where there is a 
shortage of male teachers and I have yeah. a hypothesis for why that is, but I'll put that to the side for now and ask as a male role model for these kids and the, there's a little bit of an attack on the on masculinity in itself and the culture of masculinity and how, how do you fill that vacuum for kids and give them a positive male role model while also operating under the guise of not being able to have somewhat emotionally intimate relationships with your students. Obviously yeah. emotion, maybe intimate's not the right word, but I'll, I'll let it stand. I think, yeah, especially like male masculinity is something that we've just been trying to de like debunk forever. And it's just like this big facade. It's like men don't have to be like big, gruff, all this crap. It's like, you're like, you're allowed to cry. You're allowed to be soft and gentle with the mm -hmm. kids. You're allowed to have those like heart to heart conversations. Like that's, that's who I am. And like, that's the men that I've had in my life. Like my dad is, I like, I see so much of my dad and myself now. And like my dad's a big, big, big teddy bear. It's like, you think I'm a teddy bear? It's like that guy's times five. Like, <laughs> and like my grandpa and then my other grandpa who I never got to meet, but like the stories you hear about him and like how he's just a good man. And so soft and it's like yeah your dad's six seven but he's a teddy bear your grandpa was six six but he's a teddy bear and i'm like all right i'm six eight and i'm a teddy bear big costco teddy bears the plush ones exactly i'm like literally a life-size one but yeah you know like i'm like that's the thing too it's like there's all these like rules and stuff it's like i'll give a kid a hug if they're gonna be a hug sure it's like i'm your teacher i'm like a staff in the building it's like hey like i miss it's a like, kid's having a bad day it's like all right come here give me a hug let's talk about it it's like, hey, give me a high five, like a fist bump, whatever it is, having a secret handshake with the kid. Like, just that stuff they enjoy. But it's, like, that whole, like, facade of male masculinity is just, like, we're trying to unpack and unpack and unpack. And I think I can relate back to, like, athletics. Like, we, like, everyone's, like, like men and athletics are aggressive and they're all this and that. And it's, like, you can, it's, it's, like, all right, let's try to separate the person from the athlete my ego on the floor is I'm very chatty or like I play a, like a physical game. I like I'll chirp, I'll do all this other stuff. But then you flip me and the next, next morning I'm in the classroom teaching kids and I'm this big soft guy that's singing the Macarena or singing Kumbaya to the kids. Like it's just this stark divide and people don't really see the flip of those two egos. Mm -hmm. I think especially males in elementary setting, it's like you get males in elementary and you can look at them and you can like see how they interact. You're like, yeah, you're built for this. Like, you know how to interact and build with kids and how to have that good, positive relationship with them. I think a lot of that might be also the integration of, you could say that what people perceive as the toxic aspect of masculinity would be the aggression in males yeah. and the, exactly. the, the literature on antisocial behavior out of the, out of Richard Tremblay. He, discusses the difference between male or male aggressiveness and female aggressiveness. So males and females express aggression differently from one another. And I think a part of the toxic masculinity argument shouldn't necessarily be to completely quell any idea of being aggressive, but to actually integrate that in. So you have control over that rather than pretending that it doesn't exist because it, it very much does. If you go and look at our nearest non human primate ancestors and the chimpanzees you'll you'll understand very quickly that aggression is built into us very deeply so i think it's a lot i think it's far more important to integrate that and teach kids that they have the potential to be little monsters 
and <laughs> it's, it's our responsibility to teach them how to know that they can be little monsters and make the conscious decision to not be little monsters. It's uh, something very cool that I found with Nietzsche in that the, what was the quote? It was the, I got, I got, I got to think about this hard. Um, <laughs> A, a bunny, a bunny rabbit is not righteous, but a wolf that knows that it could kill and chooses not to is righteous. So with the idea that, and I also think that people that don't think that they're aggressive and don't think that they have the capacity for malevolence are yeah. far more dangerous than people that know yeah. that they could potentially be malevolent and then they integrate that into themselves and choose not to be on a daily basis. I think that not knowing that you're capable of something allows for that thing to sneak up on you very quickly. Yeah. And then it's like, it's not a conscious effort. It's like, you don't know. It's like, you're like, you're in the, I was in that conscious mind of like trying to withhold it and withhold it and withhold it. Mm -hmm. And that could be that one thing that just makes you snap. Yeah. But like on that topic of masking, I finally found, I was reading a book a couple of years ago. It kind of sparked it for me. It was, um, I'm going to plug the book here, Indigenous Men and Masculinities, Legacies, Identities, and Regeneration by, Robert Alexander Innes and Kim Anderson. Mm -hmm. Is that it right? Yes. The book I read a couple years ago, I saw it on like Amazon and I got it as a gift. And then I ended up using it for like a bunch of like university papers. And it just like really hooked like me think being Metis and kind of like indigenous background of like, how can I be a better indigenous you know, role model in elementary settings for students? How can I debunk masculinity and all of these stereotypical archetypes that exist with being an indigenous man in Saskatchewan and all these national things that are going on in the world and how to be just a better servant leader in the classroom for kids. And what did you find with that? What was your experience? That's unbelievably fascinating. I'm going to try to get that book as quickly. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, but I got to get it. I've, I've like pulled stuff for like different like educational philosophy classes. I just like just reading the like, I mean, you think of, I won't go too much, like intergenerational trauma that's gone through like residential schools and all the things that have compounded over and over and over again on the indigenous people of Canada and how we have to continuously fight. Just like, I'll nail on the head. If you are an indigenous man, you're more likely to end up incarcerated by certain age. It's a very high percentage. Um, mm -hmm alcoholism is very high as well as just statistic like there's so many burdens or holes or hoops you have to avoid and i think that's a thing like i think like one of the kids i teach are predominantly like first nations major students here in saskatchewan it's like i always that's something that's always been in my mind it's like these kids and myself you have to think of all these things that we're mitigating and trying to help kids avoid and help guide them in the right direction it's like they have all these things placed upon them that are from intergenerational trauma, intergenerational trauma, pardon me, from colonization. It's like, all right, here we are. How do we help these students move forward in their academics and their life? Like it's, there's so many pressures and burdens. Like it's just amazing to see what, like how much people grow through all that. Yeah. I, uh, I, there's an interesting book that I cite often on this and not, necessarily because I'm looking to but because the conversation tends to move towards that direction and I always feel that it's a necessity to can you hear my dogs god they're so loud <laughs> uh, it's something that anytime it comes close to mentioning it I always bring it up because I think that to 
learn something is to repeat it often and that's how you consolidate information and it's this book by Michael J. Chandler, who's a professor at UBC, and he discusses indigenous youth suicide. And I would, I would, I talked about this with Owen Leader in the perspective of drug addiction, and I would posit that those things that you just discussed, whether it be incarceration or alcoholism, a lot of them are influenced by the culture that people are born under and raised up to be in. And something that Chandler found was that the credo distribution was innately more there than it often is in a lot of other places. So to explain that more, the about 10% of indigenous bands in Canada burden or harbor the burden of 90% of indigenous youth suicide. Yeah. And the bands that have shrinkingly fewer suicides are those that are able to one of them being self-governance. So there's there's a there's a, a small list or or there's a small set of things that will lead a band away from indigenous youth suicide. And a few of those being self-governance and the ability to have a ability to have more influence over the, the police that they, that they're policing and cultural things such as dance and language and art. And the way that I see that is similar to how we were talking about earlier is the closer you are with your community, the closer you are with your family and both of those things just have such a profound influence on the individual. So, sorry. I, yeah, I think that that's always, that's always something that's very powerful. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Like, especially like youth suicide and on, in first nations youth is so high and it just continues to skyrocket mm -hmm. because like, there, there's no, there's slim to no resources on reserve. Like it's so hard for these kids and in, in, in maybe in isolated community, communities in Saskatchewan, like it's, it's difficult and it's something that continuously happens and we're in such a world trying to combat it. And especially now in such a world where this pandemic has like really brought forth mental health and like how mental health is really a priority. It's like everyone's trying to fight demons in their head and trying to figure out what they can with the resources that are available. And I think that's the biggest thing too, is like the process of reconciliation through dance, through music, through culture, like that's, that's something that we're continuously striving toward and like just in life in general, especially in my in Métis culture, it's something I'm learning is learning more about my culture, my past and uncovering that and then being in, flipping into the education setting is putting it into the classroom because it's, it's, it's curriculum mandated, but it's like, Personally, I feel with the Saskatchewan curriculum, it's, I, I always see it as an add-on. It's never like, oh, like, what's going to talk about all the Canadian government systems? And then we'll talk a little about Indigenous systems, Indigenous and Métis government systems. It's like, all right, you're not you're going to talk all, you're going to give me all these resources about this, and then my resources, and then a little bit on this. But it's like, all right, I'm teaching everything equally. I'm teaching kids Métis self-governments, the MNS. I'm teaching kids about the FSIN, teaching about band governments, self-governments, like the whole shebang. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that's as a teacher for me is I'm teaching for reconciliation. I'm teaching for these kids to know about Canada's colonial history and how dark it is. And for these kids to know that all ways of knowing, whether it be Canadian settler ways of knowing, Indigenous, First Nations, Métis, um, Inuit ways of knowing, just trying to find ways to fully encompass. And then also my other students that are maybe new to Canada students, like learning about maybe taking personal time myself to do some learning and about those government systems and, uh, and their lived experiences and being able to tie that to this living active curriculum that I'm going to be teaching my students. Mm -hmm.
I think that's something that maybe maybe in our current political climate doesn't get emphasized enough is the being able to synergize different political climates and different ideologies. I think that one thing that ends up happening very often is that we see things as either good or bad. Actually, there's this there's this great poem by by Dickens. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to give it a go. It was the worst of times. No, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of the noisiest authorities insisted on its being perceived for good or for evil. In the degree of super, in the superlative degree of comparison only. And I think that that's a lot of the time how we look at the world is we only compare things in good or evil, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And I think that looking at the in between those gray areas is so important as to developing a strong ideological foundation for individuals and being able to question, I mean, what one, one common example that I can think of is, or one current example that I can think of is the cancellation of Canada Day in Victoria and a few other places. And I, I understand the atrocities that have happened in this country and the genocides that have taken place and they're seemingly to become more apparent as the day goes by. But to look at those things and also appreciate the unbelievable opportunity that we have as Canadian citizens to better ourselves in the world and being one of the most, like I said, I know that Canada is not the perfect place, but it's it's pretty high up there and the pe people who yes people who end up here are they've they've really drawn a lottery ticket in the context of the history of the earth and humanity as itself and being one of the most fortunate human beings alive to live where we live in in the in the way that we live in so i think it's good to take the horrific things that have happened to us and also look at the privilege that each and every one of us have and take those things and measure them against each other and with each other and try to, as you said, understand them and combine them into one and have that be a part of reconciliation. Exactly. It's just taking, it's, it's really unique to be able to take that opportunity, like take the onus on themselves and the opportunity to do the, to do the research and like to learn more about it, not to go, not just post about something on social media mm -hmm. and really, I'm really impressed with seeing people want to learn more and want to advocate and want to just like be adaptive and just like recognize what's going on and then find opportunities for growth and find opportunities to like just educate themselves, like to get schooled. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be, I, I really can't wait to see people continue to grow and just learn more about reconciliation and the Black Lives Matter movement and all these really good opportunities for people to step back, recognize their biases, and then recognize their position and how they can help and how they can just learn and just sit back and listen. Knowledge is power. Exactly. One thing that I want to touch on just before we end is your relationship with your brother and the mentor-mentee relationship that I've watched develop over these past few years. I remember seeing him <laughs> 
at lots of tournaments and you guys just have a very loving relationship and it's very cool to see. So I'd like for you to be able to comment on that. Oh God. I, the thing that blows my mind is him going off to university and now him heading off to Brandon next mm -hmm. year. <laughs> Part of me wants him in green and white, but I'm so excited <laughs> for him. <laughs> it means me. It hurts me him going down the highway, but I'm so excited for him to have a really amazing opportunity to play for a strong program. That's, coached by great men and has a great community support system and for him to, to attain his bachelor's of science degree so I'm just his biggest fan I think that's the biggest thing I've learned about myself and like teaching and how I teach and then how I hang out with him like when we were super young and we would always like beat up on each other and I even mean, though we have a six-year age difference but just watching him grow through volleyball and blaze his own path i think the biggest thing i've seen is people have always compared himself to me They're like oh like he's not tall like dalton yet he's not as physical as d and all these all these comments about him but the biggest thing about him is this kid just works hard he saw me through my experience just put my head down in the summer and just go and get to work and he that's what he did and he's gotten snubbed from a couple of provincial teams and now he's just been training and getting ready to go but I think the growth I've seen in him, especially now in high school, is his growth in confidence and the growth in his ability. And that's where I kind of uh, I get a kick out of. I kind of get that aha. I had my aha moment with him finally. We were playing men's league a couple nights ago here in Saskatoon. We were playing uh, Gavin Schmidt and Gavin Little. So two guys that have been on the pro scene, they've both done some volleyball. And they're obviously going to serve the 18-year-old the kid on the court. And i just seen him just carving and hitting shots. And he's like, getting on my ass he's like Dalton I want to win I didn't drive here an hour and 15 minutes to lose and I'm like okay it's like I can be a little harder on you now sweet I can turn it up a notch and not just play men's league ball so I think just seeing that competitive fire under his arse and then seeing him get cut from provincial teams and him train with me in the summers it's just like that he has that growth and strive for knowledge and then especially with him in academics that kid's super driven he's knows what he wants to do and i think he's going to do a really good job balancing both when he gets to university but i think the biggest thing is mom's not ready for an empty nest not at all no mom is not ready for that for him to leave and go off six hours away and how's she how's she doing she's doing good i think she's starting to unpack at that he's graduating next week so we'll see how it goes but I think she's excited to watch him go out there and see what unfolds and how he's going to blaze his path with volleyball. All he needs to know is he needs to beat 960 career points to pass me. So he's got that set on his brain that he's going to beat me in total career points. So the challenge is on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I hope that I can watch him do that over the next few years. Yeah. It's an exciting prospect to say the least. Yeah. Um, are you, are you doing anything going into the future? Just to cap off here, where where can people find you if you are doing things that people should be finding you at? And what's going on for you? What's your future? Um, I'm currently back home in Saskatoon for the summer, just teaching and training. And then I'm hopefully going back overseas to play another season of professional volleyball. I have no clue where I'm going to be playing yet. I'm still in the process of finding a contract as the summer winds down so hopefully finding myself a contract and going from there and then the rest I really don't know what the what's going to unfold I'm just trying to stay present and be in the moment and try to enjoy my time at home with my family my girlfriend my friends and everybody just trying to stay in the moment and enjoy a good good old Saskatchewan summer 
It's always a breath, a breath of fresh air to talk to you, my Sask boy. Thanks a lot for coming I'm on. Love you, man. Love you, big dog. <laughs>